Hansard. I'm a fellow here at the philosophy department at LSE, and I'm the deputy director <coughs> of the forum. And it's my pleasure today to introduce to you Katalin Kwakas, who is a professor of philosophy at the Central European University in Budapest, uh, where she's also the provost. And she uh, has, as you probably all know, research interests mainly in the philosophy of mind. Um, in 2008, she published a, uh, a book on the subject's point of view of the Oxford University Press. Um, she's done research on internalism, externalism, perception, um, and is uh, an admirer of Descartes. Uh, for those of you who maybe took my introduction of course last year, um, who might be interested in that, uh, asking her about that later. And uh, today she's going to talk to us about um, extended selves. And um, I don't want to take away any more time from her, so I'll just um, keep it at this. I think she will try to um, keep the talk at about 50 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion afterwards. Thank you very much for this kind of introduction. Thank you uh, for inviting me uh, to give a talk here. This is uh, <coughs> uh, this is very interesting and exciting for me. The uh, I don't know if you know this, but the founder of the Central European University actually studied at uh, LSE. It's a man called George Soros, and um, he uh, was particularly interested actually in philosophy. And he uh, tells everyone who is interested that uh, without his philosophical views, he couldn't have possibly made so much money. Um, it's not entirely obvious that uh, the philosophy was a necessary component or a sufficient component, probably not a sufficient component. Otherwise, it would be uh, all very rich. Um, I'd like to thank um, especially for this invitation because um, I very often I do a kind of philosophy that is very specialized and it's uh, probably understood by like five people around the world and uh, I just like I'm, I'm very dissatisfied with the state of affairs I think that uh, if, uh, you know, the best uh, philosophers of our tradition like Descartes and Locke and uh, Hume and other people could write uh, for wider audiences um, I think there is no reason why we shouldn't try a bit harder to do the same thing so this is one of the central questions that I'm interested in at the moment, um, uh, the topic of um, extended mind, extended cognition, extended selves, but I, I hope I will be able to convey this in a way that uh, even if you're not familiar with the, all the ins and outs of the literature on this topic, uh, you will understand the problem that I'm posing. Could you speak up a bit, please? Shall I speak up? into the microphone. Is that better? <laughs> Have you heard anything from what I just said? <laughs> oh my god. Thank you for, uh, thank you for making this. Uh. Anyway, I'm not going to repeat it for sure. Um, so the topic today is um, um, topic extended self, and I would like to start with a uh, distinction. Um, distinction between uh, two kinds of mental features, the two kinds of features that uh, we commonly say belongs to the mind. Uh, the first uh, are events in the stream of consciousness, and uh, the idea is intuitive enough. Whenever you are conscious, uh, there is something path passing through your consciousness. There are events, typically uh, perceptions, uh, sensations, occurring thoughts, deliberations, uh, recollections of events, uh, emotions. So you just have to think of events in the stream of consciousness as this kind of almost sort of literally a stream of events uh, that characterizes your conscious life. 
But very importantly, uh, there is more to your mind and there is more to you than uh, simply events in the stream of consciousness. And these features are features that I call standing features, which characterize you even when you're not conscious. Or they characterize you even when your consciousness is occupied with something completely different than the standing feature in question. So for example, I assume that um, all of us have some minimal beliefs about the geography of Iceland. We think that um, Iceland has volcanoes. Uh, the capital of Iceland is Reykjavik. And uh, this, is a, this is something that you believe, this is something that we all believe, and this is something, therefore, that characterizes us. This is something, a, a mental feature that we have. But I think it's very likely that until a moment ago, when I mentioned Iceland, this made very little difference to the stream of your consciousness, at least in the last two hours. And uh, another feature, or another way of sort of grasping this, this feature of standing states is even when you're completely unconscious, so for example, you're you're asleep and you're not dreaming, you're dreamlessly asleep. There is no, you're not conscious at all. Or to get a more extreme example, consider a more extreme example, you're knocked out, you lose your consciousness. These mental features characterize <coughs> you even then. Because it would be very implausible to think that when you go to sleep, you still have the belief that, uh, about geography of Ireland, Iceland, and you go to sleep and then you lose all your beliefs and then mysteriously when you woke up, when you wake up and regain consciousness, all of a sudden you regain all these beliefs and uh, other kind of states. It's not only beliefs that uh, belong here but um, desires, for example, your ambitions, your plans, your intentions, your, uh, for example, your uh, desire to spend a holiday next year in Hungary or your ambition to um, solve some uh, great philosophical problem, um, your preferences, for example, your preferring philosophy of mind to metaphysics, things like that. So these, these things are uh, all of that kind that no matter what goes on in the stream of your consciousness, and as it were in the background, you have all these mental features. <laughs> um, other uh, things that belong here are abilities, um, abilities that you may not be using on certain occasions, but still characterize you. So for example, if you're generous, um, there might be occasions when what's going on in the stream of your consciousness has nothing to do with your generosity. It's not manifesting itself in any way, but still it's true that you're generous, or maybe you're funny, um, uh, but um, at the moment you're not giving any evidence of that because you're just sitting here listening. Um, um, and uh, so, so, so these are all, um, features that I uh, classify among uh, standing features because they characterize you even when you're not conscious or even when your consciousness is occupied with something completely different. Now, this, these latter, latter group of features, standing features, are incredibly important. Um, they are incredibly important partly because I think these are very crucial in our understanding of other people and in our relation to other people. So when you think about like, what is the point of other people? Why, why do you seek the company of certain people and want to avoid the company of other people? Um, why do you invite certain people for dinner? Why do you invite other people to work with you on a project? 
Um, why do you prefer not to spend time with some yet uh, another group of people? Well, these things have to do with their standing states. They don't, strictly speaking, have to do with whatever is going on in the stream of their consciousness. When you invite someone for dinner, when you decide to um, uh, invite someone to work on a project with you, you have no idea what's going on at the moment. You may not have any idea what's going on at the moment in their stream of consciousness, but you know certain things about them, um, that they are um, conscientious, that they are clever, that they have extensive knowledge on the geography of Iceland, um, and so on. And these are the things that will motivate you in, uh, in uh, shaping your relationship to them. And so I think standing states, what people believe, what they have knowledge of, abilities, um, whether they are clever, they are capable, of uh, certain tasks and character traits, like they are conscientious, they are funny, or on the, on the contrary, they are boring or, uh, or um, um, uh, lazy. Uh, these are the things that are very important in shaping your relationship with people. Um, so, I mean, you know, why I was invited, I, what is the reason I was invited, for example, to, to give this talk is because I have certain beliefs and um, well, I, I'd like to say I have certain knowledge, but uh, that, uh, that would be a more uh, ambitious way of describing what I have. But certainly, you know, I have certain beliefs, and I hope I have certain, at least minimal abilities, uh, that qualify me to, um, um, to being invited here. Um, without these kind of things, I think it would be very difficult to make sense of people. And I have a picture of uh, Jane Austen here, because uh, this is a through these kind of things that we also understand uh, other people and what other people are like and it's through these kind of features that therefore novelists can present us uh, with people. Um, I'd like to also remark that there is a certain kind of skepticism about the stability of character traits for example that is uh, um, popular in, uh, in certain parts of philosophy and it's, uh, it's an influence from uh, social psychology. But I myself can't imagine how I could even start to make sense of other people without attributing them character traits. I, I, I just don't know how I would even begin to sort of have people in my life uh, without uh, having this resource. So I, I have an illustration here um, which is um, from Sense and Sensibility. Um, I'm just going to read it out. Elena possessed the strength of understanding and coolness of judgment which qualified her, the only 19, to be the counsel of her mother, enabled her frequently to contract to, to the advantage of them all. That eagerness of mind in Mrs. Dashwood, which must generally have led to imprudence. She had an excellent heart, her disposition was affectionate, and her feelings were strong but she knew how to govern them. It was a knowledge which her mother had yet to learn and which one of her sisters had resolved never to be taught. Marian's abilities were, in many respects, quite equal to Eleanor's. She was sensible and clever, but eager in everything. Her sorrows, her joys, could, not have, no moderation, could have no moderation. She was generous, amiable, interesting. She was everything but prudent. So it seems to me that when you read the introduction, uh, I mean, of, of the two sisters, you have two people in front of you. you you've sort of formed certain ideas of what they are like. And then, of course, throughout the novel, um, 
many things that uh, Marion and Elena do can be made sense because of of this fundamental difference uh, in their uh, in their characters. Now, everything that is listed here is a standing feature. So all these characterizations of, of, of the two sisters um, are the kind of things that I'm focusing on uh, in this lecture, the uh, standing features, things that are uh, not, in that, in that sense, part of the stream of consciousness. Okay. Now, if, if you're f uh, familiar with uh, uh, contemporary uh, problems in the philosophy of mind, and I'm sure that you uh, uh, come across the exp expression a hard problem, the hard problem of consciousness. This is a, uh, an expression coming from David Chalmers. Um, Chalmers thinks that the hard problem in the philosophy of mind is the explanation of how consciousness emerges <coughs> from the physical world. So how something like our brains and the physical world around us could possibly give rise to consciousness. So anything, so that's the really difficult problem in the philosophy of mind. I'd like to suggest that um, there is a very, very hard problem about standing states as well, um, which I find actually, in a way, even more difficult, or in any case, not less difficult than the, uh, than the problem of consciousness. So hard problem of consciousness will uh, cause you um, difficulties if, for example, if you, if you believe in physicalism. But it seems to me that the, uh, the problem of standing features is something that is independent of people's commitment to physicalism or against it. It is something that arises from the very understanding of these, of these states. So I think it's, there is another and not less difficult problem, which is understanding standing features, understanding what they are in the first place. Um, I think in, in some sense, we have a much better understanding of what conscious events are, even if we cannot explain how they emerge from physical matter, then we have an understanding of what standing features are. Um, now, this whole talk is a presentation of this problem, and I don't really have a solution. I mean, I have various ideas about directions that one might follow that might provide a, uh, uh, a solution, but this is all very tentative. So my aim, really, in this talk is just to give you a sense of the problem. Uh, give you a sense of why I think that uh, understanding what uh, standing features are is actually very problematic. And um, if you have a solution, then um, um, we'll be very happy to, uh, to hear that. OK, um, now this, um, I think that uh, the thing that, um, or the, uh, uh, the problem that, uh, that emerges um, for our understanding of standing states uh, has its origin uh, or um, has a certain relation to a certain kind of problem that Andy Clark and David Chalmers, who are pictured on this uh, photo, um, raised in a paper called um, The Extended Mind in uh, 1998. And since then, um, Clark, who is uh, more strongly committed to this thesis, wrote a book called Supersizing the Mind, which uh, was published in 2009. And uh, people debated this whole uh, issue back and forth. And uh, there is a quite recent collection in 2010 edited by Richard Mannery, uh, which um, includes some of the important contributions to the debate, again, both uh, um, attacking and defending um, the extended mind thesis. 
Now let me tell you very simply what, um, what the thesis is. Um, some of you uh, may, uh, may be familiar with this, but this case is really very simple. We have two people in this story, and it's a thought experiment. And the first is called Inga. And um, Inga um, plans to go to the Museum of Modern Art she, uh, in New York. She forms a desire, a plan to uh, go to the Museum of Modern Arts. She recalls that the Museum of Modern Arts is on 53rd Street. She sets off. That's the story of Inga. Uh, our second uh, uh, protagonist is Otto. And the difference between Inga and Otto is that Otto suffers from uh, serious memory loss. He cannot keep anything, uh, any information uh, in his mind. Uh, he cannot remember things. So he uses a notebook, and every important information that uh, pops up in his life, he puts in a notebook. So what he does is um, he also plans to go to the Museum of Modern Arts because maybe he's just talking to Inga, and Inga says, I've been to the Museum of Modern Arts, and I saw this really good exhibition. So uh, Otto forms a desire to go there. Um, finds in his notebook the piece of information that uh, Museum of Modern Arts is on 53rd Street, and he sets off. Now, so, so the difference between them is that they have, they have the same desires, and uh, then uh, they access the same piece of information that uh, the Museum of Modern Arts is on 53rd Street. Inga accesses the information by simply summoning it from uh, her memory. Otto accesses the information by looking it up in his notebook, which he always carries. Uh, and then the, uh, the required piece of information has the same effect on their actions, namely they both go and uh, um, set off towards uh, 53rd Street. Now, the thesis, the extended mind thesis, and this is the crucial point in uh, Clark and Chalmers' argument, is that if Inga has the belief that Museum of Modern Art is on 53rd Street, then so does Otto. So if we credit Inga with having the belief that Museum is on 53rd Street, then we should credit Otto with having that belief too. So even though the storage of the information for Otto is a little bit unusual, because he's not storing the information in his brain. And the access and retrieval of the information is also a little bit unusual because he's accessing and retrieving the information not by simply making a mental effort of recalling it, but by producing his notebook and looking it up. Nonetheless, for all important um, purposes, uh, Inga and Otto are equivalent because this, they are committed to the, to the truth of this piece of information in the same way, and this piece of information plays exactly the same role in both of their lives. Now, Clark and Chalmers don't deny that this is counterintuitive. So this is very unusual to say that Otto actually believes that uh, the museum is on 53rd Street. I mean, the natural thing would be to say Otto believes that the information concerning the location of the museum is to be found in his notebook, and then he gets the notebook, and then he has the occurring thought or the occurring judgment that uh, the, the uh, museum is on 53rd Street. But when he's not thinking about it, we might naturally say when he's not thinking about it, um, he does not have to believe. Uh, so in other words, he doesn't have the standing feature uh, the standing state that uh, the belief that a uh, museum is on 53rd Street. 
But um, Clark and Chalmers thinks that even though this is right around, you know, <coughs> this isn't what we would normally say, we don't have any principled reason to deny that Otto has to believe. Because what is a belief? I mean, a belief is, we all agreed, it's not something that is currently present in your stream of consciousness. And I'm not talking here about when just, uh, I forgot to, to mention this, but uh, just to be clear, when I'm talking about things that are outside the stream of consciousness, beliefs, I'm not talking about repressed beliefs or repressed desires. I'm talking about anything that Freud is interested in. I'm talking about completely mundane things like Iceland has volcanoes or um, the museum is on 53rd Street. So um, the um, Clark and Chalmers say that um, this piece of information, Museum is on 53rd Street, plays the same role in uh, both uh, Inga's and Otto's lives. So we don't have any principled reason to deny that um, Otto has this uh, belief. Um, so they don't deny that they are revisionary. Uh, they are revisionary about our practices of what to call a belief and what we couldn't, shouldn't call a belief. But uh, they deny that if we are really thinking about this in a systematic way, then we are forced to draw the conclusion that Otto has to believe. I will come back to this question. I will come back to why uh, we might think that. But uh, let me just reflect on another point first, and that's since the publication of the first uh, uh, paper in 1998, some people have hailed this um, uh, discovery as an incredibly important contribution to the philosophy of mind or about understanding uh, of ourselves. Uh, some people reacted uh, to it uh, very strongly, but uh, uh, in the opposite direction, saying that this is completely false and this is uh, just a travesty in our understanding of the mind. So. It's interesting to consider why, I mean, what is this, what is this thing that is so unusual about Otto? Uh, why would we have a strong reaction to uh, either uh, endorsing or, uh, or denying uh, this claim that Otto has, uh, has to believe? So what is new or, or unusual or problematic about Otto's case? Why, what is it about Otto that would make us hesitant or um, on the contrary, very eager to uh, endorse this uh, um, claim that, uh, that he has relevant belief. Well, here is one answer, uh, that the notebook is an essential part of the whole machinery of Otto's having the belief, right? Without the, the notebook, Otto doesn't have the belief, but the notebook is outside Otto's head. So for Inga, it seems, that all information that we call her, the content of, uh, of her belief, is, is stored in her brain. But in Otto, for Otto, some information is stored in something that is completely outside uh, his brain. In fact, it's outside his organic, organic body. Uh, it's, it's in this external object, a notebook. And this is something that is either um, so incredibly uh, counterintuitive or unacceptable that we should reject the extended mind thesis, I mean, according to those who uh, attack the extended mind thesis, or such an interesting and novel idea that uh, it would have far-reaching philosophical consequences if we accepted uh, this possibility. Um, now, if this was all, uh, that is, if, 
if the only thing that was unusual or, or problematic or revolutionary about Otto's case is simply it, it's not the brain that's doing the, uh, the storing of information, but something that's outside the organic body, then I think that would be a very simple argument for the extended mind thesis. And um, this argument is actually presented by uh, Andy Clark in the following quotation. This, this is what um, Clark says. There is a documented case from the University of California's Institute for Nonlinear Science of a California spiny lobster, one of whose neurons was deliberately damaged and replaced by a silicon circuit that restored the original functionality, in this case, the control of rhythmic chewing. So this is an actual case. Now imagine a case in which a person, called her diver, suffers minor brain damage and loses the ability to perform a simple task of arithmetic division using only her neural resources. An external silicon circuit is added that restores the previous functionality. Diver can now divide just as before, only some small part of the work is distributed across the brain and the silicon circuit. A genuinely <coughs> mental process division is supported by a hybrid biotechnological system. That alone, if you accept it, establishes the key principle of supersizing the mind. Um, <coughs> Clark makes other commitments to the same idea. Uh, for example, um, last year he uh, wrote um, a um, summary of his views on extended mind for the New York Times Opinionator blog. And uh, again, uh, there he uh, expresses a very similar idea. After uh, he goes on about prosthetic limbs, um, he says, uh, as our information processing technologies improve and become better and better adapted to fit the niche provided by biological brain, they become more, more like cognitive prosthetics, non-biological circuits that come to function as part of the material underpinnings of minds like ours. So the picture that uh, emerges from these two um, quotations is, is this, you know, okay, no one denies that uh, in a normally functioning adult human being, it's the brain that is uh, supporting all these mental features. Uh, but what if, uh, what if something gets damaged? What if a part of the brain gets damaged? It seems conceivable that we could replace uh, the functionality of that missing part with some artificial prosthesis. And uh, in that case, the mental event or mental state or mental feature that used to be supported by an entirely organic brain material is now uh, supported by a partly artificial, partly uh, organic uh, material. And uh, moreover, there is nothing inconceivable in uh, placing part of this device outside uh, the boundaries of the organic body. When we have um, prosthetic devices or devices that uh, help essential biological functions already. So we have, for example, pacemakers, which are uh, controlled from within outside device. Um, the whole thing, uh, Clark says, is just to imagine that the same sort of thing is happening for the brain. And if the same thing is happening for the brain, then uh, what used to be supported by the brain, like division, for example, or various forms of thinking, is going to be supported now partly by the device, just like, for example, a, uh, the beating of the heart is now supported partly by 
uh, an external um, device. Now, I think that uh, if, if that's all that there is to the extended mind thesis, then um, Clark is right that this is incredibly plausible. I mean, it's just incredibly plausible that, I mean, technological, obviously technological obstacles to the, uh, to the rapid development of something like this, but it's, it's incredibly plausible that something like this could happen, that you could replace various parts of a non-functioning brain or supply various parts of a non-functioning brain with technological devices that restore the original functionality. But the thing is, if this was, so, so if that is extended my thesis, then I don't think there should be a controversy about it. But if that's all that there is to the extended mind thesis, I don't know why people get so excited about it in philosophical circles. I mean, obviously, um, if we had brain prosthesis, it would be very, very significant for medicine. It would be very significant for neuroscience. It would be very, very significant for the lives of people who are affected. But why would it be philosophically significant? I mean, what? Is there anything that we think about the nature of the mind, some other thesis that we would have to give up if uh, it turned out that, uh, that we had brain prosthesis? Well, I don't think so. I think that most philosophers of mind and most people who think about the mind, not only philosophers, uh, could um, just hold on exactly the same views that they already have if, um, if brain prosthesis became possible. There's an, uh, um, an interesting <coughs> example. I mean, it's usually assumed that you know, anything like extending the mind, the arch enemy of that would be Descartes because Descartes thought that you know, the mind is, uh, is all uh, internal. But I don't think that uh, Descartes would have any problems with uh, brain prosthesis. So Descartes thinks, actually, that um, many of our mental events have a necessary physical proximal cause. cause. So for example, perceptions. You can have a perceptual mental events only if something happens in the brain and which affects the pineal gland in some way, and the pineal gland will have a direct effect on the... Uh, uh, of the soul, so without these kind of uh, physical events that are uh, occurring in the, uh, in the brain and the pineal gland, you could not possibly have certain kind of experiences. Now, Descartes, as it is well known, thinks that the human body is an automaton, it's a machine, right? So essentially, the functioning of the brain and the functioning of the pineal gland is like the functioning of a machine. Descartes surely would have no problem with the idea that some part of the machine is broken and it is replaced by another kind of machine part. You know, as long as you fix the machine, it doesn't matter whether you, you know, uh, stick things together with uh, chewing gum or tape or uh, some other kind of device. You know, if you restore the functionality, then it's fine. So Descartes, of all philosophers, I think, would have said to the idea of brain prosthesis, sure, fine, um, you know, I'm happy with that. But then, uh, if Descartes doesn't oppose this idea, you know, if such an arch-internalist and anti-physicalist and someone like that could, could live happily with the idea, then why, why would anyone oppose it? Why would this be a very significant discovery about the workings of the mind? I think there is a puzzle here. There is a further puzzle because um, um, if, we, if we thought that the interesting and significant point about the extended mind hypothesis was that we could have prosthetics for, for brain functions, then this could, of course, uh, extend to all kinds of mental features. So suppose that 
For example, and this is a realistic, to some extent realistic example, suppose that um, a part of uh, someone's brain is damaged which is responsible for producing visual experiences. For example, processing some kind of visual information. So people lose the ability, for example, to see shapes. Um, if at uh, proper technological advancement you could restore the functionality of that part of the brain, perhaps you could not fit the whole machinery in the, in the head, maybe the machinery would be a little bit big so it would sort of you know, stick out of uh, someone's head so in that sense it would be external. Um, if you could do that then you would actually um, produce or manufacture a prosthesis for a conscious event. So things like uh, uh, emotions, um, we, have, uh, we have cases like uh, cases were famously uh, discussed by Antonio Damasio when people's emotional life got impoverished uh, through, uh, because of some, uh, some brain damage. You know, if you could restore the functionality of those parts, then you would have your emotions back, you could have your vision back, you could have... Um, there's absolutely no reason why this line of reasoning should not apply to conscious events. So it's very puzzling that uh, Clark says, my own account of cognitive extensions is not meant to make any claims extending the machinery of consciousness beyond the brain. I myself am skeptical of such extensions. Why? Why not? I mean, why? If the whole point of the extended mind thesis, as Clark seemed to be saying earlier, is that you could have prosthetics for brain functions, uh, why couldn't you do that uh, with brain functions that support conscious events? It's just completely puzzling. Well, my suggestion is that the point of the extended mind uh, thesis, the point of the auto example is not that some of the machinery um, of consciousness or something else, some of the machinery of mental features is located outside uh, the boundaries of our organic body. I'd like to suggest that this is completely irrelevant. The spatial extension, the literal spatial extension of the machinery that supports, in one sense or the other, our mental features is not interesting. What is interesting is something else. And so the point of the auto example is not that we have an external device uh, that supports the, uh, the functioning, but uh, something else. So I think Clark is actually wrong in presenting his own case as if it was merely about brain prosthesis. Okay, so this is just to repeat it. The point of auto story is not about prosthesis. It's not about the fact that we could have external devices uh, supporting some uh, cognitive function. Uh, it is misleading to characterize the extended mind thesis as being merely about prosthesis. So what is it about then, if, uh, if it's not about uh, uh, just the uh, you know, possible technological advancement of creating uh, um, <coughs> hybrid uh, organic and uh, technological devices? Um, here is a very sketchy argument for the, uh, for the extended mind thesis. To have a belief is to have a highly complex collection of dispositions. So when you have a belief about the geography of Iceland, this means that you're disposed to do certain things. You have a tendency to do certain things. 
And most obviously, you have the tendency or disposition to, um, uh, when I ask you um, what the capital of uh, Iceland is, to answer this question with uh, saying that Reykjavik is the uh, capital of Iceland. So if I ask your opinion about a certain subject matter, then you will express your belief as an answer. It will have also, um, it will dispose you to do other things as well. For example, if you, someone suggests that uh, you should go to the capital of Iceland, then you will go to Reykjavik. Um, so you can see the uh, general idea, um, for example, in the case of Inga and Otto, the um, uh, Museum of Modern Arts being located on 53rd Street, that belief again uh, means that uh, Inga has certain kind of dispositions. If someone asks her for directions, she gives the appropriate answer. If she decides to go there to the Museum of Modern Arts, then she sets off towards 53rd Street, etc., etc. Um, now, the idea is that Otto has all the relevant dispositions that constitute believing that Museum of Modern Art is on 53rd Street. So from the point of view of being disposed to do certain things, being disposed to give certain answers to certain questions, being disposed to give directions, etc., uh, Otto and Inga are basically equivalent. Therefore, Otto has to believe. That's the, uh, that's the uh, argument. And, uh, you know, people have debated uh, on the steps of this argument, and I don't want to, I mean, if, I'm very happy to, uh, to answer questions about this in the, in the Q&A session, but um, I don't want to, to evaluate this argument now. I don't want to say whether this argument is valid or not. What I'm saying is that if the whole issue of extended mind and auto has any point, it's this point. And uh, when you think about it, all understanding features are also dispositions. So being generous is a certain kind of dispositions that you would act in certain ways in certain kind of situations or you would have certain thoughts in certain kind of situations. And ability, again, is a set of dispositions. Being funny or being clever or being good with numbers uh, is, again, certain kind of things that you're disposed to do in certain kind of situations. So you can see that if this is indeed the argument about extending the mind, that it will apply to all standing states. It's not obvious how it will apply to conscious events, because conscious events, the stream of event, stream of consciousness, that's that dispositional. That's all actuality. It's very concrete, right? When you're undergoing a conscious event, uh, the whole nature of the conscious event is there in its actuality. It's primarily I think conscious events are not characterized or understood in terms of what they can do. They're understood in terms of what they are, how they are presented uh, within the stream uh, in their actuality. Now, but the point, the, uh, the interesting thing about Otto is that even though he has the relevant dispositions, if you ask Otto where is uh, Museum of Modern Arts, he will answer 53rd Street. If he wants to go to the Museum of Modern Arts, he sets off towards 53rd Street. So, you know, he will do all these things. There will be something rather unusual how this is realized in his case, because there is the extra element of recalling the information from, with the help of the notebook. So that means that the dispositions, even though they are sufficiently similar to Inga's disposition, so that it qualifies as the belief, as they qualify as the belief that Museum of Modern Art is there, um, they are still uh, a little bit different. And we will see in a moment why I think this is 
very significant and why this creates a problem for our understanding of uh, standing features in the mind. Okay, so this is only a metaphorical extension. You know, if, if you extend the mind in this way, that you have this slightly unusual dispositional profile, it's not a literal spatial extension. You know, you could have, Otto could have, as pe several people pointed out, Otto could have the notebook built in his head. Uh, Otto could have, instead of the demon, uh, sorry, instead of the notebook, Otto could have a demon, if you believe in such things who every time an author wants to access some kind of information and he telepathically consults the demon and the demon would give an answer. So the spatial extension is not the point. The point is that there is a rather unusual dispositional profile associated with Otto's relation to the piece of information, the Museum of Modern Arts on 53rd Street. Okay. So now I'm going to talk about how, what this means so if we can have these rather unusual dispositional profiles, um, how far uh, this can go? Um, how far this metaphorical extension of the dispositional profiles of standing features can go? I'd just like to present a few cases that I think are a little bit problematic. So my first example involves um, Lotte, who um, becomes very interested in philosophy and uh, she signs up uh, for a philosophy course and uh, she finishes the philosophy course with uh, outstanding results and uh, when her professor congratulates her on uh, her achievement, uh, achievements she says that well actually the explanation is that she hired a consultant uh, who is available um, in, uh, all the time uh, to answer any question that Lotte might have. So she went through her courses and her exams and her essays by uh, each time having a question about philosophy, just calling the consultant who is uh, available all the time and receiving the answers from the consultant. So her latest brilliant exam paper on the issue of extended cognition was a just straight away dictated by, uh, by the consultant through a uh, I don't know, device. And uh, just to be clear, um, Lotte is a, uh, is a very intelligent person. So she understands everything that the consultant is telling her. It's not like she's just repeating the words without understanding them. No, she understands everything. But she doesn't come up with any of this stuff by herself, but anything that she produces in way of uh, answering philosophical questions <coughs> is coming from the consultant. And when the professor hears this, then he's completely terrified, or she's completely terrified, and says that this is cheating, and you can't have someone else's help in your exams. I mean, this is the number one rule, right? You can't use someone else's help in your exams. And, uh, and Lotte looks a bit uh, puzzled and uh, a bit worried for a moment, but then she lightens up and says she wasn't using someone else's help. Uh, actually, her beliefs are partly constituted by information in her consultant's mind. So just like Otto could use the notebook as an external prop um, to uh, store the uh, information that uh, provided the content of uh, his beliefs, she is actually using her consultant as an external prop to store the content of all the beliefs that she has about philosophy. And um, she has exactly the same relationship to uh, 
uh, her consultant's input on f philosophy, as Otto has on the uh, uh, information that it's notebook. She easily accesses it because the consultant is always available. So there is, it requires no special effort to, you know, call any information from that source. She automatically endorses everything that the consultant says. So it's not like she starts to ponder, is this right, is this not right? It's just like she accepts everything that the consultant says. And uh, this uh, source of information is uh, constantly available, easily accessible, and it's automatically endorsed. And that's exactly what happens to our beliefs, of course. I mean, in an ordinary case, we recall something in memory. This is something that is uh, easily accessible, almost uh, constantly available. Of course, if you're very drunk or very tired, then you may have some difficulty of recalling some information. But in normal cases, uh, you can easily access information. And then, of course, you automatically endorse it if it's something that pops up in your head. So really, if there is anything in, in the extended mind uh, hypothesis, then I think it seems that Lotte is right. I mean, these, uh, these beliefs are her beliefs. Um, if, to, um, be, um, if to have a mastery of a certain material in philosophy is a matter of having certain dispositions, you can answer exam questions, you can hold your own in a debate, uh, you can answer objections, etc., etc. If that's what it is to be good at philosophy, Lotte has it. I mean, because she has uh, access to, uh, to to all these things. Um, in, um, of course, you could say, oh, well, what if uh, what if the consultant uh, drops dead? Then all of a sudden, um, uh, Lotte loses uh, her philosophical abilities. Well, that would be a tragic affair. But that would be perhaps comparable to someone's having brain damage and losing the ability. I mean, just because you can lose the ability easily, that doesn't mean you never had it, right? So, and this, actually, this, this idea is, is already uh, envisaged in, in Clark and Chalmers' original paper because they allow for the possibility <coughs> that beliefs might be embodied in one's secretary, one's accountant, or one's co collaborator. So it is entirely possible that some of your beliefs are actually stored, as it were, in someone else's uh, brain. So did Lotte cheat? Uh, well, if the extended mind thesis is right, then she didn't cheat because she didn't use someone else's help. She used her own beliefs and all own abilities to answer the questions. Now, I think this is wrong. <laughs> so it's not only because I'm a uh, provost of a university and I can't possibly allow my students to uh, have some kind of clever philosophical argument uh, that would support their uh, practice of having someone else's uh, help. Uh, it's, that's not the only reason. I think it's fundamentally wrong. We can't say that these are Lotte's own abilities, that, that she really does genuinely have uh, knowledge of uh, of these matters, um, but then it then it seems that there is something that we need to uh, uh, clarify about our notion of uh, of beliefs and abilities, uh, how they are dispositional. You see, I think there's the same kind of very could uh, go on to character traits. So compare these two people. Inga has a brother, Angus, who is a genuinely calm person. So if there is a um, a difficult situation, then he reacts very calmly and, you know, he never gets upset or uh, annoyed and things like that. And uh, Otto has a sister, Betty, who each time when she perceives that there might be a problematic situation, uh, quickly pops a volume, which 
will we'll have exactly the same effect as um, Angus's, uh, um, um, will we'll produce exactly the same kind of dispositions that Angus has. So it seems to me that this could be an analogy of the Otto case. It could be an extended character trait that someone actually produces the same behavioral disposition by relying a on a little bit of external help. Um, well, maybe there is no difference. I don't know. Um, so this raises, you know, uh, I think some uh, some real practical questions. So um, I'm not just talking about the idea that the value of certain kinds of expertise may change. So that uh, people become good at spelling, not by you know being genuinely good at spelling, but by using a uh, a text editor. And I'm also not talking about, for example, the knowledge that London taxi drivers acquire in the knowledge college becomes uh, useless because you don't need any more a uh, detailed knowledge in your head of, uh, of um, London traffic because you can get it all from, uh, from a GPS. What I'm t talking about is that this, I think, raises the possibility that what it takes to be a certain kind of expert might change with the, uh, with the, uh, the possibility of using external uh, devices. So here is, here is something that I think is a, um, um, a regular feature of being educated uh, in law in many countries, maybe not in the UK, but certainly in Hungary, that people have to memorize uh, cases. So this is one of the things, for example, at my university, at the end of the uh, first year, uh, <coughs> law students have a big exam on cases. So they have to remember that, I don't know, uh, Smith versus Virginia in 1972, that was a case when blah, blah, blah. And if they are asked questions, they say, they ask the kind of questions, can you give an example of, um, I don't know, freedom of speech, um, having a conflict with uh, religious values, then they have to be able to say, yes, this is McKinsey versus, uh, I don't know, 1992. Um, you know, you might ask the question, what is the point of that? Why do people have to store these things in their head? Why can't they use, there are very, very good um, uh, search engines for these kind of uh, purposes. Of course, I'm not denying that, you know, they have to go through the cases and have the understanding of the relevant material, but why do they have to remember it? Why do they have to keep it in their head? So maybe the, uh, the, the lesson of some of these uh, considerations about the extended mind is that uh, the way we um, educate people and the way we try to um, examine them on whether they have a certain kind of expertise or knowledge is completely misguided. Um, I think this is one possible lesson um, of, this, um, of this line of reasoning. However, um, as, as usual in, in philosophy, the question becomes where do you stop? So maybe it would be a better idea to test, uh, not to test law students on memorizing, uh, on, on whether they memorized uh, cases. Uh, maybe we could uh, leave them to, uh, to use um, um, databases and search programs. But we certainly don't want to allow something like uh, Lotte. Uh, I mean, that seems that, uh, uh, that the contribution of the individual uh, to that piece of knowledge would be diminished to uh, such an extent that uh, we cannot accept that case. 
So this is a problem. Um, let me just give you a summary. Um, I think that um, there is one question that people often mention uh, under this issue of extended mind or extended selves is the possibility of brain prosthesis supplying the organic functioning of the brain with some external mechanical device. I think this is very plausible. I mean, the possibility of this happening is very plausible. I don't see what philosophical consequences this has. Um, however, there is a group of <laughs> mental features, these are standing features, which I think are terribly important because these are the ones that determine our relation to other people. And there is a basic difficulty about understanding what these things are because they've got to be some sort of dispositions. But once you accept that they are some sort of dispositions, it seems that you can start to extend the mind, uh, extend the mind and extend the self with it uh, to a case uh, like Lotte's. So there is a danger here, a danger of a diminishing self, that we farm out more and more of our knowledge and abilities or even character traits to external devices. And uh, what remains there after that is, is very little. So the problem that I see and the problem that I was trying to explain to you uh, today in this talk is that the way we think about standing features, um, which are very important parts of who we are, naturally lends itself to extension. But there is no obvious place for stopping this extension. And once you extend the self too far, it seems that what remains in the core is nothing. Thank you. So what, what other function do you have in mind? Emotions, understanding. How can I get understanding from a piece of paper? Imagine I've got the two similar addresses of the music, but I don't know. I can understand myself because I've been to both of the addresses. On the paper, they're both writing the 53rd Street. When it comes into choosing between a few different alternatives. But that, so so that, this is a good question. If, um, if the point of extending the mind is simply to... Um, um, imagine that there is something broken in your brain and you fix it with some piece of machinery, then um, this would apply to emotions. So if you take the famous case that Antonio Damasio <coughs> discusses, this guy, what's his name? Phineas Gage, right? That the uh, some big rod went through his, uh, his brain and then his uh, emotional life got diminished. Now imagine that with a very careful work, you manage to restore the damaged part, then his emotions would be restored. Okay, and the point is that what gives us a reason to say if I can replace piece of brain which helps me to see the things, 
it gives us the criteria. I say, okay, because I can replace this one, I can replace the emotion effort. Why is that? I'm assuming, and this is the, the gauge case, is a very good uh, evidence for this, that uh, even if uh, emotions are not entirely physical, they have a physical basis. So if you really mess with someone's brain, then their emotional life changes. I mean, this is what happened to this guy. You know, he, he suffered major brain damage, and as a result, he lost some of his emotions. So the suggestion is very natural that you can't guarantee that he will get back all his emotions once you restore the functionality of the appropriate part of the brain. But at least it gives us hope, because this is what he lost. If that's the case, then I can say the most clever philosopher in the world is Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Yes, that's the, that's so the problem. I well, that's carry <laughs> all around the world and I say that I'm the biggest philosopher. I've got everything. That is exactly the problem. Yeah, in the back in the last uh, It seems to me like there's a, a quality thing about what you're, what you're talking about replacing the brain. That if you're saying with the example of the lobster where you can restore a function like chewing with a that mathematical thing, there's a, there, that seems like there's a clear, I can imagine how you replace the philosophy to make that work. But when you get into things where you have uh, you know, that quality um, stream consciousness experience, that then it's not so clear to me that that's the thing that can be replaced. So, just very clearly, I think that. Um, why, why do you think it cannot be replaced? I mean, we have enormous amount of evidence that uh, certain selective brain damage. Uh, diminishes people's conscious experience. They lose out on emotions, on visual experiences, on other kind of, uh, they lose their sense of their body. Uh, they, they use, so, so if you could restore the functioning, why, why wouldn't you get back the conscious experience? Well, the question is, when you've replaced it, have you replaced it with life for life? Does the experience stay the same as <coughs> the, once the circuitry is in there? Like, do you, um, you, you automatically get back the same emotions? further leap into the, into the future there, I think. But you can, but I think you can, you can demonstrate chewing very straightforwardly, but I don't know whether when it comes to things like uh, experiencing a sense of place or you know, feeling of history or anything of those things that are so much more vague and you know, personal, whether that's something that automatically just becomes... I think it depends on the... But it's... Well, it... it, it uh, it is certainly very difficult, <laughs> but it seems to me that um, if you can lose a conscious experience because of physical damage to your brain, then in theory, if you restore the physical functionality of that part of the brain, you could regain the conscious experience. And that's all I need. Yeah, I think you could, you could, you could, you could replace the experience, but in the same way that if you replace a limb um, with a prosthetic what you what you gain in this place is not is not the same experience. It's not the same relation. Like you might perform the same functions, but I think there's a quality thing that happens that I think is beyond <coughs> what it's possible to know now. That's a totally empirical question. I mean, we will just have to see. We're <laughs> starting to find out, but it just seems like it doesn't necessarily follow that it will be the same replacement. Okay, the red screen. Thanks, sir. Um, I'm, I think there's a lot in there. I'm not 100% sure I understand it, but a few questions come up. I mean, the first one, so I think it's interesting, the first question we jump straight to whether or not this is physically possible. I, I go to the other end and say, oh, I've got no problem with imagining one day us 
conscious experience, I can completely accept the idea that it would have a conscious experience. Um, and I think that maybe one reason why people don't like it or say that they've got a philosophical problem is because they just don't like the idea. It's psychological. Um, in terms of getting into like the, the actual philosophical problems, one thing that occurs to me is, is there a necessity to further divide the idea of standing states? Because to me, a belief about where a museum is, um, a belief based on information, may be quite different to a belief about whether or not you should hate somebody because of the colour of their skin or the way they look or something like that. So maybe there, there are further divisions in standing states. Um, and then another problem of us non is there a possibility that in the, I mean, I suppose in the, the Otto example, saying that yeah, his belief is based on a trust that he has um, of that <coughs> notebook, that he knows that he wrote it down, or somebody wrote it down at some point, and he has to trust it. Or maybe think of the film Memento, uh, which is all about that kind of thing. Um, and that in the same way, we don't want to say that when we remember something in our mind, that we have to trust that. That made me think of Wittgenstein as well, and the whole mental table and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I noticed that, that, that at the end that you kind of brought in you know, this danger of diminishing self about our knowledge and abilities and I can totally see knowledge and abilities being able to be given as information like having an implant or something like that um, but I'm not sure how I can see that they would end up to character traits I mean you could be given the whole of the history of human history uh, the whole of human history you can also be given information about every possible kind of upbringing and all of those experiences, but could you then still predict that somebody would end up as a good person or a bad person, a racist person or, or a sexist person, any of those things? So I'm not sure the character traits will diminish in that same way. And when you're talking about exams, I think we're already moving towards where we don't examine on knowledge. So it's fine to take a book into the exam if you're doing an English exam or something like that. And it's more about our ability to process and use that information and apply it to new situations. And that actually, if we farm off the parts of our brain that are used to process or hold knowledge and information, maybe actually it will increase the space for the self and there will be more room for us to do thinking, processing. Okay. You already gave me like um, six um, uh, very good questions. Uh, and um, so, um, about the robot, I'm absolutely not committed to the idea that a, an entirely silicon robot would be conscious. I have no idea whether this would be the case or not. I'm just, I mean, all these examples, notice that all these examples, uh, the extended mind examples, are based on organic creatures which get a prosthesis. So that's a major difference. Um, about the division of standing states uh, that, you know, different kinds of things. I mean, this is, this is of course, uh, a good point. And uh, for those um, mental features that um, have a more modularized uh, realization in the mind, uh, this is much more plausible. So if you can actually identify the brain area which is responsible for a... Um, uh, then, uh, then this is uh, the whole story is more plausible than for something like I don't know being a racist, which is must, must be an incredibly, incredibly complex thing. Um, in some ways, it's very simple, but uh, the physical realization in the brain is probably uh, very complex. About right, extended character traits, well, you know, I think I think the examples uh, that I um, 
that I gave is an example of an extended character trait. Um, so here's another one. Um, for example, you have um, uh, Ulysses tied to the mast. So Ulysses um, wants to resist the call of the siren. There are various ways of doing that. One way of doing it is just standing there and hoping that he wouldn't move. Another is tying himself to the mast. It seems to me that you know, if you characterize character traits, like for example being strong-willed in terms of what you do, then actually Ulysses manifests the appropriate action. He has a bit of an external help, that is being tied to the mast. Um, am, I, am I a strong-willed person when I uh, successfully diet? Um, and there are two ways of doing this. One is that I buy lots of chocolate and it's in the fridge and I'm not just not touching it or I'm not buying any chocolate so that when I have a chocolate craving then, you know, it's the, this sort of the actual manifestation of the behavior, it seems to me, is at the end the same. Um, but in some cases you are just having a little bit of external prop, um, a little bit of external help to manifest the same uh, behavior that would be characteristic of the character trait in question. Um, that, that would be the analogy for extended character traits. I'm not saying that you could predict anything. What I'm saying is that you manifest the behavior that is typical of that character trait by using some external help. Um, about um, abilities uh, and farming out or farming of uh, knowledge. You see, that's why I think it's interesting um, when your mind extends not, to, um, not only to uh, inanimate things like uh, the encyclopedia of philosophy or the whole internet or the notebook and things like that. That's why I chose the example of Lotte. Because your mind there uh, extends to something that under normal conception of things has its own abilities that is another person. Um, so a real life, you know, um, a real life analogy would be is a, is a brilliant um, CEO of a company or a brilliant investor who actually, <laughs> whose brilliance consists in the fact of employing the right people. Um, so in this sense, you know, uh, we very naturally um, attribute, uh, we, we very naturally recognize achievements of people on the basis of what other people did. And I think this is the threatening line because if I um, credit the COO for the success uh, of the company because uh, the only thing that he did is that he appointed a really good uh, senior management leadership team, then in a sense I'm crediting the COO for, the CEO for uh, what other people did with their own abilities. Um, so I think the, uh, the, the problematic question is, is if you're extending your mind to, so that some of your mind, as it were, uh, involves other people, then uh, you're extending your abilities, not only the sort of mere storage of information. And I think that's, a, that's the very, because it's not clear where you should start. Okay, there's lots more questions, I realize, but I want to abuse the privilege of being here just for one second, because it's sort of related to the point you just made. But one thing, I, I, um, I was kind of intrigued by the way um, in which you characterize the problem in the end, namely you characterize it as the problem of diminishing self, potentially diminishing self. Whereas intuitively, perhaps you might think when you talk about extended mind, the alternative way of thinking about it is that you know, our self really goes out 
um, and it extends in all kinds of areas where we previously would have drawn boundaries. So I'm, I wanted to know uh, whether you could say a little bit more on why we should think of it as diminishing self rather than expanding self. Um, but also the last points that you made about the implications uh, that this might have for, for instance, for the way we educate or for the way that we uh, test for certain abilities. It seems to me that those implications are actually really independent from whether or not you buy into the extended mind hypothesis. I mean, it seems to me that simply as a matter of fact, we now have a lot of technological advances which sort of change the way we do certain things. You mentioned cab driving, you know, every, every cab driver now has a GPS, whereas previously they would have had to learn the streets. We, none of us really has to memorize any phone numbers anymore because we all have them on their cell, phone, uh, cell phones and so on. And, it, it's, and you know, there's also in, in your ethics all this debate about uh, neurological enhancements and, and things like that. It seems to me that independent as to whether you buy into the extended mind hypothesis, this creates these problems. This forces us to ask these questions. Should we, wait? should we change the way we think about these things and should we change the way perhaps we educate people in terms of knowing wh where to look for information, for instance, about the internet rather than in terms of memorizing the information? When, when this well, both are very, very good points. I mean, the, uh, the diminishing versus extending self. I mean, it, it is a bit paradoxical, I think, because um, like Lottie's example, uh, prima facie, her mind really extends now to, um, to include um, her consultant's mind, or at least her consultant's views on philosophy. But my intuitive feeling is that, in fact, what is really hers is very little. I mean, her what is really her contribution has become smaller. And if I, um, in the, in the if the character trait examples work, I'm not necessarily certain that the character trait examples work, but if the character trait examples work, that's another way of uh, what really is yours. I mean, if, if you're relying on the mask to hold you down, um, or not having any chocolate in the house when you're on diet, if, uh, you know, if you're relying, if you're relying on a volume to uh, you know, keep you calm all the time and things like that, then it seems to me that um, in, in this case, that there is a danger that you're just uh, what really is really yours is um, is becoming smaller and smaller. So, like the more we use our iPhones and computers, the lesser we become. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, if, as for the uh, for the second question, that this is happening anyway. Well, I think this is one of the very few uh, issues when uh, when when it would be nice to have a philosophical understanding of this question because I think it would help us. In, uh, in actually uh, fashioning policies for um, for these things that we have to fashion policies anyway. So I, I absolutely agree with you that we are facing these questions anyway. It seems to me that if we had a more adequate philosophical understanding of the extended mind issue, then we would know better, we would know more about how to uh, proceed with these questions. So for example, uh, you, could, you could say, if, if some extension of the mind is okay, then you could legitimately say, to people who complain about the use of calculators, that this is ridiculous because someone who uses a calculator to count has exactly the same that abilities that are just as good as, uh, as those people who can calculate without, uh, without a calculator. Yeah. Um, it, it occurred to me when you were talking about Inga and Olga, uh, Otto and Inga, that um, you weren't actually talking about the same sort of thing. Because Otto had a damaged brain, and Inga had one that worked properly, and Otto is really thinking in black and white, 
whereas Inga is thinking in grayscale. And he he's relying entirely on what he's put into his notebook. And she's relying on all sorts of things. I, I found it difficult to compare the two. And also, when you were talking about the consultant, the, the difference between the consultant and the notebook is that Otto has put the information into the notebook, but the student hasn't put any information into the consultant's head. So the student is only retrieving the information that the consultant's put there, him or herself. <coughs> I don't really have a question, but I, it's just an observation. Now that is actually a very good point. So this is one way you could try to resist. You could say, okay, Otto is fine. Otto has the belief, but, just reacted to your second point, um, uh, but we don't have to go as far as Lotte because Otto actually consciously endorsed every piece of information that went into the notebook, whereas Lotte did not consciously endorse everything that's in her consultant's mind, and that's a very important difference, and we can attribute someone a belief only if they have actually consciously endorsed it sometime in the past. Uh, and that would qualify Otto, but not Lotte. Um, so I'm, I'm skeptical about this because I think you, what matters for having a belief is not what you've done in the past, but what you are disposed to do in the future. So this is a bit of an extreme example, but I think you could acquire a belief if you were hit on the head and your brain reorganized itself in such a way that you would find yourself with exactly the same dispositions as someone who, um, who, who actually had acquired the belief in the ordinary course of life. When you're talking about beliefs, are you, are you talking about effectively data, information that you have acquired and put into your brain, or are you talking about things that you believe in but you don't know why, like God, for example? There's absolutely no evidence, but a lot of people believe in God. So what is God's a belief rather than a fact, whereas 53rd Street is a fact, not a belief? Well, I, I don't know if there is such a big difference, because you could, uh, uh, you could acquire a belief in God because there is a, an appropriate causal history. So you were brought up in that way, or you consulted all the arguments for the existence of God and you got persuaded by them. So there are many ways of, uh, of acquiring this belief, which is an ordinary course of acquiring the belief. But I think... And this is a bit, um, you know, science fiction, but you could also acquire the belief if a very clever neuroscientist tampered with part of your brain that was responsible for that, and once you wake up from the operation, you will find yourself with exactly the same dispositions as the guy who acquired the belief in the normal course of events. So I think what matters is what you are prepared to do and not how you acquired it. That seems to me uh, what is really crucial for having a belief. Uh, hey, uh, so I'd like to get back to this issue about diminishing stuff, uh, as we see it. Because, um, I mean, like you said, you know, we begin to form out ability and look at how, you know, certain arguments can show how ourselves are really extended, you know, how far does this go? So, I mean, I think, I mean, to me and to a particular body of philosophical work that, you know, seems to be very interested in, you know, I mean, the obvious answer is all the way down. You know, that this idea of a self, you know, is an abstraction that is useful to think and reason with in everyday life, but, you know, when you ultimately look at it, you know, it's all shared meaning. You know, the idea of a 53rd Street is based on this, you know, 
so I'm just wondering, so I mean, this seems to, so I mean, this idea of, of you seeing it as a danger of this diminishing stuff, I mean, I just kind of like to get an idea more of like what you see as the danger. Why do you think there has to be this true self that we should hold on to when it seems there is never a true self really? <laughs> And, and, and maybe maybe um, my putting it in terms of the diminishing self is a bit misleading because you quite naturally assume that I'm taking on all the philosophical baggage of uh, certain kind of metaphysical views about the self, that it's a substance, that it's an enduring entity. And I don't mean to do anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, you're you. Um, you have certain abilities and beliefs and character traits and the people who are interested in you are interested in you because of those things. People who are not interested in you are not interested in you because of those things. And uh, this is what, I mean, in my case, these are the things that I call my own. This is what I think I am. You know, the things that I believe, the things that I, and my abilities, my character, this is, this is me. And if this all depended on this kind of farmed out thing, then I would feel that myself, I'm just, what am I? But then I think that's, you know, that's an anxiety that, you know, seems to be unnecessary. Because, I mean, you know, the way you define yourself is ultimately the way you define yourself against others. Without the others, there'd be no means to define yourself in this way. I don't know how that makes a difference to a question. So, well, I mean, for me, for example... You, that you need this true self that you can hold on to, or you haven't seemed to give a good reason why that's a valuable thing. Well, just to think about these very simple terms. I mean, I, for, for example, uh, doing philosophy is an important part of my life. I'm not saying that this is the only thing that uh, is important or the most important, but it's certainly an important thing that I'm doing. And uh, I have certain philosophical views, and I have certain philosophical abilities, and I, and I think that these are... Now, if this, if this all depended on, and I'm not even have to talk about self or anything, if this all depended on another person, then I would feel some lacuna in my life. That's as simple as that. Okay, I think we should move on to the next question. Maybe then the back in the last one. Um, do you believe that the extended self is more vulnerable to manipulation? And maybe that's why you might feel the manipulation. <coughs> well, that, that is a very, there's a very good question, because uh, when you sort of farm things out, uh, it's much easier for people to uh, interfere with it or manipulate it. So, for example, someone could steal Otto's notebook and, a, um, and replace uh, some of the uh, uh, information in it. So someone could delete 53rd Street and just write 54th Street there, right? Um, that in itself does not make Otto different from, uh, from Inga because Inga's brain could have some kind of effect that uh, falsifies her memory. I mean, this, but you're right that it's much easier to replace, just cross out a number in Otto's notebook than to find exactly what it is in Inga's brain that is responsible for her believing 53rd Street and 54th Street. So it's not a uh, difference in principle that you can temper with one and you can't temper with the other, but you're right that it's a difference in degree that it's easier to temper with it. Once, once it's outside. Isn't that also true with maybe emotion as well? I think some people have criticised Facebook for the way that that human being thinks it is wrapped with um, online. Uh, 
Well, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's a similar kind of thing because I think Facebook is not part of the mind. I think it just causes certain events. So um, it's not like everything that has has a part in the causal history of our emotions is part of the machinery of our emotions. No one would want to say that. So I think it's just um, Facebook just means that you're exposed to different kind of stimulus rather than something constituting the uh, the emotion itself. I, maybe I should, should, should have mentioned this, uh, this more explicitly. So I think that my desire to once spend a holiday on um, Capri is a, is a standing feature. So this is something that I acquired, this desire, a few years ago. And I still have it. And maybe I will have it for some time. Now, I'm calling this a standing feature because even when I'm talking about or thinking about something completely different, not my holiday and not Capri, it's still something that I have. There are occasions when I can call this in mind. And then a, something which is sometimes called an occurring desire enters in my stream of consciousness. So there is a relation between a standing feature and certain events in the stream of consciousness. So for example, in the case of a belief, if I believe that the Museum of Modern Art is on 53rd Street, this very often causes a conscious event, which is a judgment, that is an episode in the stream of consciousness. So it's a bit misleading because people often use desire also both for the standing state and the episode in the stream of consciousness. But I think they are very different kinds of things. I see. I think. I think the uh, the sort of <laughs> an interesting example of the extended mind is in. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with uh, Philip Pullman's uh, book, the uh, what is it called, uh, Northern Lights, right? So in that story, um, in, in the other world, uh, people, everyone has a demon, and the demon obviously is a part of their soul, and it's a it's a physical manifestation of a part of their soul, which always takes the form of an animal. And, uh, and when, you, um, uh, when you look at uh, the uh, dialogues which take place between a person and her demon, it's often things like when you're debating with yourself, should I do this? No, I shouldn't. Well, is this dangerous? No, it isn't. Let's, you know, when you're debating things with yourself. So it very easily lends itself to, as it were, splitting your personality into two things. But Pullman insists that no one could be separated from their demon <coughs> uh, without dying. So it's only when you die that when you're separated from your demon. So it's still part of you. I think we have time for one last question. Um, right in the middle. Yeah, I wanted to suggest uh, an issue that uh, 
facilitate it doesn't add anything to itself. <coughs> Although it's just something which is particularly bombarded every day with signifiers and signs and words and such. So that seems to me to be add anything to it. So I can't see how that could extend itself to outside of the body. And also, in relation to the lobster um, uh, example as well, uh, it seems it works for the lobster instead of being trying to be human. It was, you said, imagine this could be the case, but there's some evidence of that. Well, I think there is, uh, there, is, there is some evidence in that we, we can identify very well certain parts of the brain that are damaged. Um, and in the, and that's, um, that was the, uh, that, the gentleman's question earlier, is that uh, does that give us reason to, to think that we can actually manufacture something that could do the same functionality? I think it does. I think it, it definitely does. Now, coming, to, uh, coming back to your first question, so I, Otto doesn't have an extra ability. Um, her, uh, his ability to remember things is simply to look up things in a notebook, which is very similar to the Memento movie. Is the guy is remembering things by looking it up, the information which is tattooed on his uh, on his skin. So it doesn't have an extra ability; it just has more beliefs, in virtue of having the notebook. I'm afraid we're at the end of our time. I apologize to all of those who couldn't get to ask their question, and thanks to, um, to those who did ask really interesting questions. And please join me in thanking Kathleen Tully.